Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Ben Callard. With us today is Agnes Callard, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago, and she's here to discuss aspiration. Agnes Callard, welcome back to Elucidations. Thank you. So you've encouraged us to think about aspiration as something like the desire to behave according to a different set of values or to live according to a different set of values than the one you're currently living according to. So like one, I think pretty straightforward example of this is, uh, you know, I've never been able to get into opera, but I see all my friends around me are really into it. And I want to like, see what I'm missing. I want to learn to appreciate opera. What are some other examples of being in this state of aspiration besides that case? Yeah. So uh, the first thing I would say is that maybe the, the target of aspiration is living in accordance with a different set of values. The aspiration itself is the sort of the process of getting you there. So it's the work that you do to acquire those values. Now, I think that you people do that sort of work towards a huge variety of targets. So for a lot of us, becoming parents is something that we aspire to. Being someone's parent it isn't just a biological fact, it's an ethical fact about how you relate to them, your love for them. We learn how to love and care for our children. And in fact, in that particular case, um, the target is a bit of a moving target. So it's a long learning process. But other examples might be, um, you know, when someone first goes to college, there's an aspirational process there in which they are going to learn to have the values of a student, and generally of a student in some particular area, like the values of a philosopher, say, if you're a philosophy major. Let me try to think of a different kind of example. I think, you know, um, becoming an athlete of a certain sort, or even just getting into sports as a hobby, that could also be an aspirational activity. And then careers of maybe most kinds of careers have an aspirational component to them as well. So this is a really wide variety of different things you might aspire towards, I think. Yeah. Now, about some of those examples, I wonder whether they really are examples of wanting to have a different set of values. Like, I don't know. So let's say I aspire to become a parent. I'm not a parent currently, but I can imagine that when I do have a baby, I'm going to want the baby to be happy and well-fed and etc. So I can already see what the value in those things would be right now, even though I don't have a child. Likewise, maybe if I aspire to become a football player, well, you know, I, even though I'm not a football player, I can already tell right now in my current set of values that it's good to be good at catching passes and it's good to win games and it's et cetera, et cetera. So in what sense do these examples involve like changing to a new set of values? 
Yeah, so in the parent case, I think it's certainly true that even someone who's not a parent can say things like, well, I'm going to want my child to be happy and I'm going to value my child's happiness once the child exists. But that's a kind of a placeholder thought, right? It's not as though you can really see what that is. Like, what is it for a newborn baby to be happy? What is it for a three-year-old to be happy? What is it for your particular three-year-old who has a particular set of traits and um, to be happy? That's something you can't really know in advance. And so, I mean, I think the case of parenting is actually especially radical in that way, in that we have especially little knowledge of what we will be like, because that way that we're going to be is centered around a being who doesn't yet exist, right? So it's not that you can't say things, even true things, about what the person who you're going to be is going to value. It's that insofar as you're an aspirant, those thoughts necessarily have a kind of incompleteness, where like most of their sort of content and resonance and meaning is going to have to be filled out at the end of the process. Okay, right. So it's almost like maybe I have some grasp on hypothetically why I'm going to value having a good education for my child once I have one. But like my current grasp on that is, I yeah, the general idea I have now, but maybe it's like sort of fuzzy or imprecise or something like that, my grasp of why it's exactly good for this child that doesn't exist yet, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think we could put it that way, but that is we could use the concept of vagueness to help us out and say, well, I have a vaguer. Um, but it's a, I would then also want to add it's a particular kind of vagueness. So, you know, if I know that it's raining outside, I don't know exactly, like I don't know if it's raining a huge amount or a little bit, you know, there are different kinds of rain, right? I might not know the details. And I think in the aspirational case, the ignorance is a little more profound than that. I mean, we can use the concept of vagueness, but we have to talk then about aspirational vagueness or something like that. You know, when I um, say, well, I want my child to be happy, but I don't know what that's going to be like. It's not just that, um, well, I, I know vaguely what I want for them, but I don't know the details. It's like, I really, I really don't know what their happiness will be like. Like most of what I have is ignorance, we might say. Um, what I have is a kind of way of, marking out my target and directing myself towards it that at the stage I am now doesn't involve a lot of knowledge of what that target is. It's like I have a way of referring to it or picking it out that doesn't include a lot of knowledge on my part. And a sort of our language of like having a vague grasp or something is, is a way that we have of talking about that general phenomenon of sort of being able to pick something out but imperfectly. But in this case, I guess it's a, it's a particular kind of imperfection in your thought. So you've uh, written a book about this, which is going to come out, I think, in 2017. It's called Aspiration. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And so I think in the book, your notion of a proleptic reason is the thing that corresponds to what Matt was just talking about. That is to say this vague grasp of the value that you're aspirationally aiming towards mm -hmm. or, or have as your goal. And so it might be worth talking about it a little bit in, in those terms for a minute. So one of the central claims of your book is that aspiration is a rational activity, mm -hmm. that we're acting on reasons in some sense. But you also, in the book, acknowledge that that is a departure from how many philosophers understand how a reason can work. And in particular, they tend to think that you can only act on a reason that you currently, consciously, fully grasp. 
that, so to speak, the resources you have rationally are the resources that you have at the time that you act. So it seems to me one of the most important ideas in the book is that you think that for aspirational activity or for the aspirational process, that's not the case. And you say that what we have, let's say, at the beginning stage of the process is what you call a proleptic reason. And so could you talk a little bit about, first of all, what a proleptic reason is, and maybe also how a proleptic reason relates to the reasons that you have at the end of the process when you fully understand the value or fully appreciate the value. Yeah, good, because I think it would be very hard to talk about proleptic reasons without talking about those reasons, actually, because I think what a proleptic reason is is just a kind of acknowledgedly defective version of the reason that you have at the end of the process, right? So basically the idea is you're performing some activity, right? And you can tell that your own understanding of the value and meaning of that activity is not quite right. It's defective. Um, In particular, I think it's defective in the sense of being underestimating the value. You don't grasp all the value that's there. But you're not, it's not as though all you have is this defective grasp. You also have a sense that it is defective. And so what I say is that the proleptic reason has kind of two faces, a proximate face and a distal face. And so to illustrate it with an example, right, you might be taking, say, a music appreciation class. And, you know, you're doing that because you want to come to appreciate music, but you don't appreciate it very much at the moment. That's why you have to take class. And so you're supposed to listen to some piece of music and you're finding it really boring and you're really tempted to stop. And so you say to yourself, I can eat a candy bar if I get through this, right? You're going to reward yourself. And so in some sense, right, the rational structure of what you're doing is you're motivated by this thought of eating the candy bar. You're like, if I listen to this, I get to eat the candy bar. But it isn't just that. It isn't as though someone else has offered you a candy bar to eat it, right? You've offered it to yourself. And that reflects your own understanding that there's more here than what you are currently able to sort of motivationally hook onto. It's a bit embarrassing. Like, it would be embarrassing if you had to admit to people you were listening to it for the sake of a candy bar. Someone who didn't appreciate that there was anything more to classical music than that wouldn't be embarrassed because they would just think, oh, I've gotten it for the right reason. Right? So that I mean, that's just an example to illustrate them. Okay, good. So one question is how proleptic reasons relate to the end state reasons, the reasons at the end, how they relate in terms of the content of the reason or, but then you just gave us some other conditions on aspiration. And in particular, you were emphasizing the recognition that your grasp of the end state reason is defective. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Another sort of case that doesn't have that feature, but has the first sort of feature would be, for example, parents sometimes tell children a story which is, so to speak, designed for a child, but it's designed to bring out some truth that they'll understand better when they're older, mm. uh, it's a complicated or emotionally disturbing truth or something. Mm. And so they give them something, which the child might later on say, they were trying to help me to understand love or death or whatever. Yeah. But in that case, the child might not have this felt sense of inadequacy. I, I'm, or maybe, or do you want to say maybe they do in that case? I think that's a really interesting yeah. example because I think in a way you could just say proleptic reasons are like that, but you're doing the whole thing for yourself. I mean... So, because I do think that, I mean, in that case, it's sort of crucial that you have two people in the story, right? And the adult does have a sense of both, right? A sense of both what the child needs to hear now and what they might need to hear in the future. And essentially, the process of aspiration is 
it sort of reflects a capacity that we have. And I think that we start to have that capacity, like in a full sense, maybe when we're around like teenage age to sort of do that for ourselves, to pull ourselves forward to certain kinds of goals that we don't fully grasp at the outset. I see. And I mean, in a way, isn't the candy bar example just like that? You know, you could imagine a parent literally bribing their six-year-old that if they sit through this class, they can get a candy bar at the end. You know, in a way, it's like maybe when you're a little bit older, you just you play the same trick on yourself and you offer yourself the candy bar. I don't know if we want to say exactly you're parenting yourself or you're teaching yourself, but you're in the position of mentor to yourself, as it were. I think that that's right, except that I think we have to remember it's really crucial about aspiration that um, when you're mentoring yourself, the you that does the mentoring isn't in any better position than the you that's mentored, unlike the parent-child case. So it isn't as though there's some special, secret, better part of you that fully grasps the value of classical music. There is no such part. And so the sort of the magic of it, in a way, is that you can do it without that element. Okay, right. So it would be like the parent who themselves doesn't appreciate classical music, but recognizes that there is value to it and then bribes the child <laughs> or something. <laughs> um, yeah, except, I mean, look, I think when we try to decompose it in this way, it can be helpful, but it, it isn't exactly made up of such of these kinds of parts. Like the whole thing, what we're describing is a learning process, right? We're describing somebody who sees that they have something to learn and trying to learn that thing. And really what I would say is that um, that's the basic case. And you could understand parents and children and the parents' bribery of a child as a kind of funny, defective version of the learning process, right, I would tend to say. And that we're not born able to aspire because we're born able to do almost nothing, right? We can't even, we don't even have language. So in a sense, your parents are kind of like a crutch that you need before you can start teaching yourself. But the basic mechanics of the teaching process, I think, are like more paradigmatically intelligible in the aspiration case than in the parent-child case. So I can imagine someone agreeing with a substantial amount of what you say in the book, but resisting on this central and very mm. important point about it's being a rational activity and I think some of your answer to the challenge I'm about to state is already implicit in what you were just saying. But I can imagine someone thinking, you know, change in values is very real and it's a very important part of life. But why insist that it's a rational process? Why not think that we perform actions in the non-aspirational way? And those sometimes have as their effects. I mean, that is, it's just as a causal consequence of what we do. We wind up opening new horizons value-wise for ourselves. But it's not as though that process is a rational activity. In a certain sense, it's more passive than you mm -hmm. want to say it is. It's, yeah. it's something that happens to you. It may happen to you partly as a result of things that you actively do, but it's not in the way that you characterize it a, a rational activity. So can you maybe say a little bit more about why it's important to see it as rational? Yeah. Maybe before I sort of try to make your problem go away, let me make it a little worse. Um, Good. There's a set of arguments that I go through in my book, and they, they sort of appear in a variety of forms. And these arguments are an attempt to show that aspiration, as I've described it, are impossible. And the arguments take the form of a dilemma. And you have just given one horn of the dilemma. So one horn is, look, there's a process that's very much like the process that you described, but it's really a passive one where the person undergoes it. And my interlocutor, um, who's trying to be 
open-minded says, look, I'm not going to say that that's all there is. There's another kind of process that also sounds a lot <clears throat> like what you're talking about. And it's a process that I would call self-cultivation. So let me give an example. Suppose that all of my friends are into a certain kind of music. And I feel really left out. Um, they're always doing things that relate to this music and getting together on the basis of it. I might want to come to like the music in order to join in on their activities. In that sort of case, I know in advance exactly what I would be getting out of, or at any rate, I think I know exactly what I would be getting out of acquiring a taste for that sort of music. Okay, so I'm going to call that self-cultivation. It's different from aspiration because aspiration is open-ended in the way that I've described. The person doesn't take themselves to know or to grasp the value of what they're doing. Okay, so what my interlocutor in the book keeps saying to me is, look, if you're describing some kind of activity, either it's rational and it's a case of self-cultivation where you actually do know what the goal is and you can see in advance that it would be good for you to have certain desires or values or whatever, or on the other hand, it's actually a more passive process where you're sort of shaped by um, environmental factors and you end up with a certain value. Why think there's anything in the middle? Okay. And the book as a whole is, you know, it's an attempt to argue my way out of that dilemma. Now, in a way, your question is, well, why would you want to argue out of the dilemma? What, what is to be gained? Right. Um, and that's a slightly different question from how do you argue your way out of it? Right. right. So let me answer your question. Yes. I give a couple of different answers in the book, but let me just pick one because they're the stakes, sort of one of the topics of the book is sort of the stakes of recognizing aspiration. But here's one from the conclusion of the book. So one place where this aspirational phenomena have shown up in the philosophical literature is in the literature on big life decisions, but specifically the decision to have a child. And, you know, for the reasons we've already gone through, that decision can seem kind of obscure. Like, what? how could it possibly look attractive to you, given that the good that you're getting is totally unknown to you before? Now, suppose that you think that there is no rational way to make that transition. You know, it can happen to you, right? And then you can be happy about it. But there's no, a person doesn't have reasons for having a child. I mean, except in cases where they're having a child for, you know, because they need enough hands to bring in the harvest or whatever. But we're talking about in what some people might say in wealthy Western societies. I suspect in many, many societies, even ones that are not wealthy in Western, the main reason for having a child is for its own sake. Um, and so the question then is, is that rational? Um, do you have a reason, right? Are you acting on a reason? Now, my view is you are acting on a proleptic reason. But suppose you were to say you're acting on no, you don't have a reason. It's not to say it's irrational, but irrational. Okay, it's something in effect that happens to you more than something that you do. Well, now suppose we take the case of somebody who wanted to have a child, right? But she can't. On the view where she never had a reason for having a child in the first place, she also has no reason to be upset about not being able to have a child. So what I argue in the conclusion of the book is that if you deny the existence of proleptic reasons, you're going to have ethically the wrong sorts of responses to such a person. You're going to think, for instance, she's being irrational when she's upset. Now, you might still be nice to her and you might not. You might be so nice that you're not going to tell her she's being irrational, right? But that's the wrong ethical relation in which to stand to such a person. And the point generalizes to aspirants more generally. Aspirants are directed to some goal. And I think if they are cut off from that, they 
will experience a form of grief that is rational, that makes sense. And it makes sense in the mode of rational agency. And so, you know, one cost of denying the rationality of aspiration is that you are cutting off those emotional reactions from their source of rationality. Okay, nice. So we've been thinking about whether aspiring to, for example, become a parent is a rational or not rational activity to engage in, mm-hmm. where that means, is it something you, as it were, actively do, or is it something that just sort of happens to you? Exactly. It's imposed upon you. And one strange consequence that you've been drawing our attention to, to saying that it's just something that happens to you, is that, well, if becoming a parent and valuing the things about a particular child that that parent should value about that child was just something that happened to you, then it would be tough to explain why people who are not able to become parents for other reasons feel bad about that and feel like they have an opportunity cut off from them. And we can only make sense of this like wanting to become a the wanting part if it's something that you do rather than something that just happens to you. What we might want to do is think about how these two things are connected. One, the question of whether the aspirant is active or passive in relation to her goal. And two, the question of whether she has any grasp of the goal in advance or something like that, right? And I was talking in a way about the second thing and about how someone could rationally pursue a goal that they didn't grasp well. But your question was initially phrased in terms of the first thing, agency and patency. And the connection is just that we typically understand agency as practical reason motivated behavior. Right? So what it is to do something is to have reasons for what you do, for reasons that motivate you. Right? If there were no reasons motivating you, then what moved you didn't exactly motivate you. What, you know, um, they could be outside or inside forces, but what you did doesn't rise to the level of action if it wasn't done on the basis of reasons. And so that's how the language of rationality tracks language of agency, right? And so if the aspirant has a reason, if she's acting on a reason, then she's acting in effect, right? If she has no reason for what she's doing, then she is in some sense at the mercy of either her environment or her passions. And those things are maybe driving her or informing her or affecting her. But there isn't anything that she is in the first instance doing. Right. So it's like, you know, the standard way that many philosophers and other theorists have of distinguishing between somebody who just does random things for no reason whatsoever and somebody who like, you know, has got like some sort of plan and is you know, behaving in an intelligible way is when the latter person does something, they do it for a reason, which is maybe to say they do it as a way of maybe like realizing one of their current values or something like that. And maybe the crux sort of dilemma that you are wrestling with in your work here is that it's not so easy to see how you would apply that to the aspiration case, because if you want to have a different set of values than the one you currently have, well, then it can't be according to the set of values that you currently have. It can't be like for the sake of those that you're changing to this new set. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It looks like the kind of key element of a reason, namely the goal that you have, is supposed to be a goal that you have now. You're acting in order to achieve some purpose that you currently have, but the aspirant is acting in order to have a purpose or a goal. And then the solution, I take it, that you're developing is to say that when I desire to value this 
other thing that I don't currently value. It's not because of the values I currently have. Rather, it's because I partially grasp this later set of values that I want to have right now. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, one thing that may not be obvious, maybe the most radical idea in the book, which comes in the last part of the book, is that that form of explanation is teleological, which is to say it's a form of explanation where something that comes temporally at the end of a process has to explain what happened earlier. So if you want to understand what is it like to be in the condition where you have a kind of aspirational grasp of the value of, say, being a doctor, you're, you know, in medical school and you, you dream of becoming a doctor and you, well, the thing you need to bring in to explain that is like the doctor you'll be at the end of the process. You're an attenuated version of that, right? And so in order to explain who you are right now, we actually have to make reference to who you will be in the future. Can we talk a bit about more about that part of the book? Mm-hmm. So you often put it in terms of uh, in which direction a grounding relation goes, what's grounded in, in what. And you distinguish normative priority from causal priority. And you say that part of the reason why people might be resistant to your view is that they're conflating these two kinds of priority. And that once we distinguish them, you say that we can have a coherent view on which the normative priority where we should look to figure out what is right or proper or best, we need to look at the end of the process to answer those questions. We don't look at where you are at the beginning. We look at the reasons at the end. And you say that that's consistent with having causation as opposed to those normative or ethical facts. It's consistent with causation just going forward in the ordinary way. So you're not appealing to backwards causation. You're saying your early state can be an efficient cause of your later state. It can be the thing that makes your later state happen. But your later state is the thing we need to look to to figure out what you should look like at the end and also to under- make sense of the state you're in at the beginning. Is that is that right? Or Yeah, I think that that is right. And maybe it would be helpful to contrast the case where the two things are going in parallel so we can see how weird the aspiration case is. So if you think about you know, suppose I make a promise to you, right? And then I, of what, I will get, what I'm going to do tomorrow. And now it's tomorrow, okay? What behavior on my part will constitute success or having done right by you? Well, it depends on what I said yesterday, right? So yesterday sets the conditions on my success or failure today. What it is, suppose I promise to come to your party, well, then I'll have a successful day. I'll achieve like, um, you know, normative rectitude or something like that today if I come to your party, right? So, but I mean, suppose I promise not to come to your party yesterday. Well, then success will be not coming to your party, right? So we need to look to yesterday in order to figure out whether today is going right or wrong. That's how promises work. Aspiration works the other way, right? Take an aspirant. She's wants to become a doctor. Is she doing things right or wrong? Are her actions and her way of um, studying, her way of thinking about medicine, are they going right or wrong? Well, in order to really judge that, we would want to think about whether she is working her way towards, whether they are successful ways of getting at the state she wants to be at at the end. That's what set the standard. And Obviously, that creates a practical problem, right? Because we don't have any access. The aspirin doesn't have any access 
direct access to the person she's going to be when she isn't yet that person. And so that's why we find aspirin so often having like mentors, right? Because I could consult someone else who is a doctor now who has achieved the end of the process and have them help me understand whether or not I'm doing things correct if I'm the medical aspirant. So that's the normative direction, the direction of what sets the standards for success or failure. And in aspiration, it's the thing at the end that sets the standards of success or failure for the whole process. And that thing is something to which the aspirant herself has only incomplete access until she reaches it, right? But, you know, that doesn't change the fact that causality runs in a certain direction. And so the person at the end of the process is the causal result of the, you know, of the aspirant, right? Um, they brought her about. What I'm trying to show is just, it just doesn't follow from the fact that self one brings to, uh, self two about, that self one is the causal source of self two. It doesn't follow from that, that S1 is authoritative over S2, that S1 sets the rules for S2, that S1 tells what S2 should be like. It works that way in the promising case, but, and it works that way in a lot of cases that are like commitments that are structured like commitments. You make a commitment, then you have to live up to your past commitment, but it doesn't work that way in aspiration. Isn't it similar in the case of like just sort of boring everyday actions? So let's say I'm out of asparagus. I want some asparagus. So I go to the store to get some asparagus. I decide I want asparagus at 12 o'clock and I actually get the asparagus at 1230. Well, if we're telling a story about what made what happen, kind of like physically as it were, well, first at 12 o'clock, some of my muscles started contracting and other my muscles started relaxing and that happened for a little while. And then eventually, voila, I arrived at the store and I got asparagus. You might call that kind of like a causal story about this happened and it led to this other thing happening. But if we're asking about, well, what was I trying to achieve? Well, I was trying to achieve the outcome of having asparagus, which happened at 1230. So that's in the future after the moment when I'm sitting there before I've gotten the asparagus. So it seems like there's the same case of two different kinds of explanation happening in the opposite temporal order, just in everyday action examples. What physically made the one thing lead to the other thing? That could be happening, you know, in first A, then B. But why was A happening in the sense of like, in the interest of what? Well, because of B. So in that sense, let B then A. Yeah. So I think that that's right. And I think that there is something teleological in just ordinary action. However, that fact, the fact that there's something teleological in ordinary action is famously disturbing to philosophers. And they've found a way to essentially explain it away. Um, and that's the causal theory of action. Okay, So Davidson's causal theory of action essentially says, yeah, it's true that say, my action of moving towards the store can be assessed in the light of whether or not I get the asparagus at the later time. But that's only because before I even started moving towards the store, I had a set of mental states, a desire for asparagus, and a belief that if I went to the store, I would get asparagus. And that even prior set of attitudes explains why my getting asparagus is a success condition on, you know, what I'm doing when I'm walking. So essentially, you can just reintroduce a causal component so as to kind of moor or root the standard 
in the light of which you're assessing the action in something that's temporarily prior to the action. And if you have that kind of approach to action, and I don't, I have no objection to that way of understanding action, at least not in the book. But if you have that approach to action, you're going to be pretty tempted to think that it's only because some bit of behavior is governed by an antecedent representation of both its value and its possibility that it can be assessed in the light of the corresponding standard. Right. And then that's not going to work in the case of aspiration because this idea of explaining away, it's because of the future thing that I'm doing the present thing, uh, that's not going to work because the idea that um, what looks like a future thing is really just a present belief and desire, well, that's going to be in terms of your current set of values, not in terms of the destination set of values. Yes, that's exactly right. Can I ask how this idea that we were just talking about relates to a famous sort of example from Bernard Williams? So Williams, in his paper Moral Luck, says that Gauguin, the success of Gauguin's life, in particular, the rightness or goodness of his early actions of leaving his wife and child and going off to the South Seas, is to be assessed by whether or not he, in fact, succeeds at being a great painter in the South Seas. Mm. So in your use of normative priority, the normative priority is in the same direction mm-hmm. as aspiration. Yeah. And it looks like the causal direction is also the same as it is in aspiration. Namely, you explain where he ends up causally in terms of what he did earlier. Yeah. So is that a case of aspiration or, or not? One could tell that story as a story of aspiration, but I don't think Williams intended for it as such. I think Williams was making a more radical criticism of the sort of standing set of assumptions in the ethics, moral psychology literature than I am. So his thought was, in effect, even if some fact has nothing to do with your agency at all, you could still be on the hook for it. Um, So that's why he called it luck, right? And so in calling it luck, the way to sort of line up his terminology with mine is what he calls luck is what I would call passive or something like that, right? So it's sort of, if it sort of worked out, then you get a certain kind of credit, Williams thinks, as a result of luck. Many people, myself included, find the very idea of moral luck to be something close to a contradiction in terms. And I guess I don't want to defend that view here. In fact, I'm not in some moments more convinced by Williams than others. But um, what I want to say is even if you are totally unconvinced by that idea, you might still buy the idea of aspiration. Um, Aspiration doesn't require you to make Williams's separation between success or failure on the one hand and agency on the other. It doesn't presuppose that you can succeed, but not as an agent. So instead, what I'm saying is there's a distinctive form of agency. So you've used the notion of a self several times today. And in chapter five, you talk about self-creation. That is, you take aspiration to be Mm self-creation. And so I wanted to just get a, a bit clearer about what exactly we're talking about there. And maybe in particular, sort of how metaphysical a claim, the claims here are. So at times, it sounds to me in the book, like you by self, you mean, roughly speaking, the person's moral character or their ethical features or something mm-hmm. like that. And putting it in those terms, aspiration would involve a person ceasing to have one set of features, namely some moral features, and starting to have some other features. Mm-hmm. But there are other places in the book, 
including in that chapter on self-creation, where it sounds like you're making a stronger claim than that. You're almost identifying the person with the self, and you're sort of saying he, the person becomes a new person in some more literal sense. It's not just that they're losing some features and taking on other features, but they're actually, unless we put some distance between the notion of a self and the notion of a person, the notion of self-creation is going to be the notion of the creation of a person. I just wanted to ask you whether you mean to be committing yourself to something metaphysically rich that way, or whether it's the other claim that you have more in mind, or, or what? So first, you're right that when I talk about the self, what I really mean is the person's set of values, which in turn, I think could be helpfully glossed as what the person cares about, what's important to them. Where that can also be negative things, like it can be a fact about your values that you don't care about the people around you, right? Okay. So when I talk about self-creation, what I mean is the creation of those things, of values, of carings, coming to care about things that you didn't care about before. And now it sounds like I'm just giving the first answer, right? But I guess I want to add something, which is I think arguably that's just what a person really is. You know, when... Um, when Martin Luther King says, you know, don't judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, I take it the underlying argument is because the content of their character is who they really are. That's why you should judge them by that. You should judge them by who they are, right? So there are many things like associated with a person, like being a person, that means you have a physical body, you occupy a certain space, right? But what is the fundamental fact about you. And I guess at least as far as ethics is concerned, and then there's going to be a question about the relation between ethics and metaphysics, but at least as far as ethics is concerned, the fundamental fact about you is what do you value? And so in creating what I call yourself, you are creating the ethically fundamental fact or feature about you. But I have to admit that I have not thought much about the metaphysical implications of those claims and how they interact with claims in the personal identity literature about like personal identity over time and what sort of holds a person together and makes them one over a period of time. That's not because I think those questions are disconnected actually, or can be really separated, but I just haven't done it. Would it be accurate to say that, you know, a person's self, my true self, Matt's true self would be something like whatever it is that can be evaluated morally by other people, whatever it is that's subject to blame and approval and so on and so forth. That is roughly how I'm using the phrase true self. I think that's not uncontentious. That is, I don't think that that's what the phrase has to mean. And I don't argue for it. I just, I say this at the end of the introduction, I'm just presupposing that that's what yourself is, is like yourself as insofar as you're an object of um, moral approval or disapproval, both to other people and to yourself, like the things about yourself that you could be proud of, right? But maybe one thing that's worth pointing out is that it's a presupposition of your book that your true self could be something that doesn't exist yet, right? So that in some sense, like in a lot of the true self literature, there's just an assumption that your true self is some part or aspect of the person that you already are. We have to find it. It's your deep self, your hidden self, but it's somewhere in there, in you already. And, you know, one contribution of this book to what you might call the philosophy of the self is the idea that your true self can be something that you're working towards. You've also made a very interesting argument that uh, there's no such thing as like a bad or wrong or incorrect aspiration. And I mean, off the top of my head, I might imagine that there might be such a thing as, you know, somebody really perverse might aspire to become 
a mass murderer or aspire to be really bad at telling jokes or what have you. I'm not sure exactly why, but I can imagine somebody maybe in that mental state. But you've argued that those kinds of things wouldn't really be aspiration. So why is that? Yeah, so I think this part of my book is the most exciting part. And I mean the word exciting with all the positive and negative connotations that it might have in that it's an extremely bold claim for which I give some argument, but I myself feel that it probably needs more argument than I give. Um, It came about in a funny way. I assumed that the opposite was true. I mean, obviously, you could have any sort of aspiration. And then I tried to come up with examples, and I couldn't. And I tried and I tried, and what would happen is I would start with an example like the ones you've just given. I'd be like, right, sure, bad aspiration. Somebody wants to become a mafioso. Somebody wants to become a mass murderer. Somebody, you know, aspires to all those different things. Now, let me start telling the story of it so I can put it in my book and give an example of a bad aspiration. And as I would tell the story, it would sort of turn into something that wasn't an aspiration. It would turn into a case of self-cultivation or a case of being shaped. And... I found this very puzzling. Why did all my examples somehow transform themselves in my hand as though they had like a life of their own? And here's the conclusion that I came to. The claim in the book is maybe a little bit weaker than the claim that you've just made, which is that we can't see some behavior that someone else is doing as a case of aspiration unless we think that their target is a good one. And here's why. If you think that their target is not good, then you don't see any value there where they're like they're pointing, but you see nothing there. Right. And so from your point of view, all the value in the story is summed up by what I've called the proximate face of the proleptic reason. Right. So suppose you really you just think there's absolutely nothing to classical music, like you think it's all a hoax and pretense and whatever. Right. And you see someone and they're like, I'm going to give myself this candy. Right the way it looks to you is like, oh, well, they're just doing it for the candy, right? And so um, when I would try to come up with these examples of bad aspiration, I would be presupposing, because I was taking the cases to be bad, that there was nothing, there was no target at the end on which the person had an eye, right? There was nothing more to their activity than whatever they were getting out of it at the moment or whatever they could already see they were going to get out of it. There was no value that transcended their current grasp of the situation. And so that turned out not to be a case of aspiration from my point of view, right? Now, they might see things very differently, right? And they might say, no, I'm aspiring. And now we can just ask who's right. And, you know, my book doesn't take a stand on metaethical views, but let's just suppose we're moral realists. Well, if we're moral realists, there's just going to be a fact of the matter about whether that person is aspiring or not, that fact is going to be whether there is a value there or not. If I'm wrong and there is a value there, then she is aspiring, though I don't believe she is. If I'm right and there isn't one, then she's not aspiring, though she believes she is. Right. That was the last thing you said is exactly what I was thinking of mentioning, right? It seems like if this is part of the view, then then there are going to be cases where you believe that you're aspiring to do something, but you in fact aren't because the thing that you want to do is not a good thing or a thing that should be valued. Absolutely. And I think that actually there could be cases like that, even if the thing was good, because the conditions sort of like 
in order for you to reach your target, two conditions have to be met. One is your target has to exist or be there, and two is you have to be able to get there, right? So it may be like the classical music really is genuinely valuable, but it is just not for me. I'm just the kind of person who is never going to appreciate it. I'm like missing some sort of basic musical sensitivity, innate musical sensitivity that would be required for appreciating it. And so it's like a pointless project for me, right? And I'm not getting anywhere. And somebody who had some musical knowledge or training might be able to tell that about me, right? And they might be able to tell that I'm something like going through the dance of aspiration, but you know, I'm not actually really aspiring. And so I think that the problem of thinking that you're aspiring when you're not is actually even bigger than just the set of people who aspire towards things that are in fact bad. And that's why aspiration is kind of quite difficult. Um, and aspirants are on kind of thin ice in the sense that they're characteristically kind of insecure and uncertain. They often reach out for authority figures to reassure them both that there is something at the end and that they're on the right track. And so, yes, aspiration is one among the many things in life where you can think you're doing it but not be doing it. Okay, right. So I could be thinking that I'm aspiring to appreciate opera but not really be aspiring to appreciate opera if, in fact, opera is not worth appreciating. But I could also think that I'm aspiring to appreciate opera and not in fact be appreciating opera if I think that I'm like sort of partially apprehending the worth of opera, but in fact I'm not, that something else is happening. Yeah, exactly. Can I ask you guys a question? Please. Do you feel like the concept of aspiration helps you shed light on any phenomena in your life? That is, is it, does it resonate with something in your experience with some particular thing, I mean, some particular period or some particular efforts or some particular goals such that thinking of those things aspirationally makes them make more sense. Yeah, definitely in my case. Uh, I mean, so in my case, I started off as a graduate student millions of years ago in a different field from philosophy and began taking random classes in philosophy and really getting into it and eventually deciding to change fields. And I'll say that when I first started reading your book, I uh, wasn't yet fully persuaded that these wanting to become an X cases were exactly like the wanting to appreciate opera case. Mm. But once you added in the point that wanting to become an X involves not fully understanding the value of doing X things, that actually did resonate for me a lot. Because I definitely feel that I, having taken a couple philosophy classes, had a bit of a grasp of what really great philosophy looks like. And it was tantalizing enough to make me want to get more. But I definitely feel that having actually then made the leap and beginning like officially to study philosophy, my grasp of what exactly good philosophy looks like and, you know, was enriched and and a lot of the details were filled in that were missing previously. Mm. At the risk of being boring, I'm going to give an example that's very similar to to Matt's. I I can actually think of many cases in my life, but I'm going to give one that's largely Matt's example, but it's just true. Uh, Namely, when I was a teenager, like many future philosophers, I was into science. I was into physics in particular, and I thought I was going to go into physics. But at the same time, even then, even when I was 15, I had this sense, a sense partly created by my own uncertainties when I was reading, partly from talking to my physics teachers, that there was something wrong. I wasn't quite my interests weren't quite in this subject. I was interested in something, but I didn't have a good enough grasp of that something yet to even be able to name it. I didn't really know about philosophy when I was 15. 
and slowly I just sort of found my way to philosophy, as many philosophers have from physics or mathematics or something else. But I strongly feel now that the thing that I was fumbling my way towards, the thing I was trying to get at, or that I was trying to do, and I, I was doing a little bit in a kind of very inchoate, apprentice sort of a way, was philosophy. Even back then when it was, as it were, in the idiom of physics, it now strikes me that that's the thing that I was really after, and it's the thing I... I, I, I mean, I take it you think I could be wrong about that, but the point is I could be right, too. I, it, yeah. it could be that there can be that relationship between a thing as you understand it at a given time and your sense of how that early grasp relates to a later thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the thing that really resonates with you is that the aspiration theory allows you to give real meaning to the idea of, like, this is what I was after all along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Agnes Keller, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, we hope to have you back uh, yet again on Elucidations at some future date. Absolutely. Thank you. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.